Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna-Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers to thrive on camera and in life and to make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase, aspire higher. To aspire means to seek to attain or accomplish a particular goal or having a strong desire for personal advancement. To aspire higher is to dream bigger and to soar. Here to discuss is Ken Lindner, the author of the book, Aspire Higher. I have known Ken for years as a legendary broadcast agent representing clients, including Lester Holt, Anna Cabrera, Mario Lopez, Robin Mead, and an endless list of household names. And I'm delighted to discover Ken is also the founder of Positive Life Choice Psychology, who ardently believes it is our life choices and decisions, big and small, that impact our feelings of self-esteem, self-worth, self-image, and self-love. Welcome, Ken. I am delighted that you are here. Barbara, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Thank you. Well, thanks for saying yes. So I wanted to begin from reading your bio, all the things I learned about you that even though I have known you for longer than I, you know, I don't want to give away my age, I am riveted to discover you wrote your thesis at Harvard on the dynamics of decision making. So this is, first of all, like, how did you come to that at 22 years old? And two, the fact that this has been a big theme for you for many, many years. Well, Barbara, I've always been an athlete. I played something called paddle tennis early on, then I transitioned to tennis and had a pretty successful tennis career. And I found that it was the choices that I made, the times when I uh, was disciplined as opposed to going out to a party at a tournament, I'd go home and get my sleep. And uh, times when I wanted to do something other than practice, but I did practice, that got me to excel and be the best that I could be. And I realized early on that it was the choices that I made, as you said earlier, big and small ones, that really made the difference between my reaching my potential, my self-actualizing, and my just being okay. And I really loved embracing the choice, the importance of the choice when I was very uh, young. And I was also way challenged as a youngster. And I realized that if I would forego the cheesecake and the chunkies and the M&Ms, I'd be thinner, more agile, and I'd get to play ball with my dad more often because he enjoyed it more because I could actually count, um, catch the ball on a bounce, hit the ball on a bounce. And uh, I loved getting my dad's approval. So throughout my life, I always felt like the choices I've made have either put me in a position to succeed or put me in a position to not succeed. So when I went to Harvard, I studied anthropology, sociology, and what they called at Harvard social relations, but all of the disciplines that dealt with interpersonal relationships. And I decided that for my thesis, I was going to write a paper on the study of how people make their decisions and how those decisions impacted their feelings of self-esteem, whether they raised them or lowered them, 
their feelings of self-worth, same thing, and then their feelings of self-love and their self-image. And when people make great decisions, as I did in, in many instances in my life, I felt good about myself. I felt empowered. I felt I put myself on a path to succeed. And I liked that path, which further positively reinforced my making good decisions uh, in the future. So, um, and then as a talent agent, I believe that if you have people of equal talent, and even some people who might be less naturally gifted, and I think you could say this about athletics as well, if you work hard, if you work smart, if you make really good decisions, again, talent can only take you so far. Talent is potential. The key to realizing your potential, I believe, is making great choices that go along with the talent. And then you truly self-actualize if, you if you've got talent and you make great choices. Oh, that's beautifully said, Ken, because I am a firm believer. What, one of my favorite sayings is hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And similarly, I'm in New York, so this is very controversial for me to say, but I love studying Tom Brady because he is such a wonderful example of exactly what you're talking about, only because he was not a starter in high school, not a starter in college, was 200 and something in the draft pick his year in the NFL, was not the starter you know, with the Patriots. And so I love his TB12 philosophy and how, to your exact point, he looked at strengths, weaknesses, but how could he be smarter with what he had? Again, you don't have to be a fan, but uh, his record speaks for himself. So I love everything you just beautifully said. I actually, I'm going to circle back to your process, but I did want to talk about, because you refer to something as the golden path to soul lifting, enduring self-love, which you're speaking my language and I'm like leaning in all over this, but you didn't always feel this way. I didn't. Um, my dad used to work all the time. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and my dad didn't have an education to speak of. He came over here from Poland and to Ellis Island and came over at a young age. And his dad had passed away when they were in Poland from a blood disease, which actually triggered uh, my dad's mom and his baby sister moving from Poland to the United States. But he had to start working at a very young age because they needed money. So he worked in factories and worked in garment shops to just help put food on the table. So he never had the formal education that others had and he did incredibly well, uh, which I can talk to you about a little bit later. But what happened was, was that he felt that he needed to work harder than everyone else because he didn't have the education, the formal education that others had. And he used to work six days a week and many nights. Whereas my mom was a stay-at-home mom and he worked hard so that my mom could be a stay-at-home mom. So as a very young person, I intuited, my mom's always with me, always talking with me, always there for me. So she must love me. My dad is never there, um, always there very rarely. 
So he didn't love me. So that triggered within me strong feelings of insecurity and partial unlovability, which made me oftentimes binge eat, uh, which led to my being what I heard later was an obese child. And because I was trying to assuage all of those horrible feelings. So that's the beginning of my life. Now, uh, I eventually bonded with my dad through athletics, which was why I became an athlete and why I, I love athletics. And my dad was always an athlete. So he and I bonded and he worked less as time went on. And I felt his love, which he always did. He always loved me. But, you know, he never had a fathering role model because uh, his father died when he was very, very young. He knew how to be a father, really. Um, he knew how to relate to me, but he learned. And I learned probably when I was 13 or 14 or 15 how much he did love me and how hard he worked to give me the education he never had, the things he never had. And you hear about parents always wanting the best for their children. He wanted the best for me. So I understood it. My heart, as I talk about in um, Aspire Higher, my heart of hearts, which had some really negative feelings, and I talk about the heart of hearts as being sort of a collection of your psyche, your soul, and, and your heart. My heart started to fill up with feelings of love and higher self-esteem when I felt my dad's love. I had always felt my mom's love. So I started to make better decisions because I thought I was worthy of better decisions. I deserved good things in my life because I felt better about myself. So in essence, Barbara, when I started to feel self-love, that I felt good about myself, that I could accomplish things on myself through athletics and then through academics, I felt self-love and the love I felt for me made me make good decisions like losing weight, staying healthy, being fit, getting myself into a good college, um, thriving at that college, and then on and on after that, going to law school and, and doing all sorts of other things. I think, I really believe I've self-actualized. I really believe I'm hitting on all cylinders. I write books, I'm a loving dad, a uh, loving husband, and uh, my business has been around now for almost 35 years, and we represent, as you so nicely said, many of the uh, most well-respected broadcast journalists in the country, and I'm having a great time. I'm still playing paddle tennis at a high level, so I'm feeling great, and I'm doing the best I can, and I do the best I can because I feel like uh, I'm incentivized because I have self-love in my heart. And what I try to do with my clients in broadcasting and outside of broadcasting is get them to make decisions, small ones so they get their confidence, larger ones once they get their confidence, to make decisions that put them in a position to attain their goals and live their dreams. I want to actually point out something because I love this connection that you made and I think it's important for listeners is the, using the word deserving and the self-love because then it's a really important component in the aspire higher goes from wishful thinking 
and magical thinking and fantasy or simply a dream to now actually being actionable. Because when you really internalize and believe that you deserve the life that you want and are working for, then you can make it happen. And I thought that was so beautiful and powerful and you're using your own experience, which leads me, I wanna ask you about your tennis coach at Harvard. Your coach really believes in you and you're still young, you're in college and you're asked to make a very, very big life decision. Yes. Well, actually that coach, Barbara, was someone by the name of Gardner Malloy, who's in the Tennis Hall of Fame. And he was teaching down in Florida. And it was when I was in college and we were vacationing in Florida that I would see Gardner and he would coach me. And what happened was, was that when I was at school at Harvard, we had a very good team, but with the weather being the way it is, with the academic pressures being the way they were, I wasn't practicing five hours a day, and that's what you need to do to be the best you can be as a tennis player. I wasn't on tennis scholarship there, but I was captain and, and my senior year number one player and all that. But when I went down to Florida and Gardner coached me, and I was playing a lot every day, my game rose. I wasn't, because it was holiday vacation, Christmas vacation, I wasn't studying. I was playing and my game rose, I felt, a couple of levels. And what Gardner said to me was, he would be willing to coach me and play and have me play tournaments around the world if I quit college. And I was a junior and that was a really, really hard choice because playing tennis and paddle tennis allowed me to grow, allowed me to get the confidence I really needed to um, know that I can do really good things for my life. As you said earlier, it's one thing to hope you can do it. It's one thing to imagine you can do it. But tennis was my litmus test that I could do it because it's meritocracy. Either you go out and you beat people, you win the matches, or you don't. Either you know how good you are, or you, you, know, you can tell. You know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to actually beat Arthur Ashe when I was in college in an Wait, exhibition. What? Say that again. Was, I actually had the honor and pleasure to play Arthur Ashe twice, actually, and beat him, or to beat him in, a, uh, in an exhibition match back in Brooklyn, New York, and I lost him the next year, but Arthur was ranked fifth in the world at that point. And I also had the honor to uh, win the Princeton Invitational Doubles Championship against a really terrific University of Georgia team. I won the Eastern Men's Singles, Eastern Men's Doubles. I won a lot of tournaments uh, playing tennis during my college years. And that was my litmus test. I also won the New York Cities and New York States twice in high school. That showed me that I could, if I put my mind to something, accomplish really great things, which gave me the template mm -hmm. for life for me. So athletics were the, really the thing that, that made me. And I've always said, and I've gone to some good schools, I've learned far more on the athletic field than I've ever learned in any classroom about navigating life, about real life, about emotional intelligence. 
I, I'm a huge advocate of, of young people getting into sports or anybody getting into sports because I think it is an amazing, gives you an amazing foundation about how to win and lose and learn from both experiences and keep your poise and not get too crazy when you lose, just learn from the experience. So thinking about playing tennis and having a world-class tennis coach with me was really tough. On the other side of the coin, I was at this great school. I loved Harvard. And when I told my dad that I was thinking about quitting college, I honestly thought he was gonna go apoplectic because here I was living the life he worked so hard to give me. I was at a great college and there are many great colleges, didn't have to be Harvard. He was just happy that I was getting a college education. And here I was willing to, or thinking about giving it up to go on tour and play tennis. And the pressure on me was tremendous because I knew my dad was absolutely upset that I was thinking about giving everything he and I had worked so hard for, and my mom had worked so hard for. My mom was good with it. My mom was much more uh, flexible than my dad was. Um, and she said, look, if this is really what you want to do, I'm all for it. So I actually had the sort of what they call the yin and yang there. And it was my first experience realizing how much uh, my dad's approval meant to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a real struggle. But I wound up not taking that offer. And I wound up staying in school as attractive as it was, especially if I hadn't studied for finals yet. So it really isn't just a bag of but I didn't, and I did it because I didn't think, honestly, at the end of the day, I had the physical makeup to play seven, eight hours a day and be on tour. I had some ankle issues. And at the end of the day, I honestly assessed my ability, and I didn't think I was good enough. That was my question, was really, and circling back to the beginning of the conversation, is understanding, even at such a young age, what your assessment process was. It sounds like you were very rational, like strengths. It was almost like your own SWOT analysis, yeah. you know, strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and what are the challenges out there and where where do I measure here and what brings me joy? I, and the other part is, is Barbara, that's so, that's such a astute comment. I loved pursuing uh, what I was pursuing at Harvard. I was really excited about my thesis. I had started writing it already and I loved it. I was growing. I was always an athlete. Now I became more of a student and I was ready. So when I had this opportunity to to leave school, I really was at a pivotal time. I was loving what I was doing intellectually and, and academically. I knew that I had some ankle issues, some ligament issues, and I didn't I didn't really believe that I had the ability to win against world-class players. And I think I was right on all fronts. And the interesting part was going a year later is when I played Arthur Ashe. And my dad was there, my mom was there. And and after I played this exhibition match against him, my dad actually walked up to me and said, maybe you should have played tennis. And 
it was a it was really one of those epiphany moments because I thought, wow, now when it's too late, you really realize that I did have, you know, a lot of ability. And it was one of the great experiences of my life because I didn't second guess myself after playing Arthur Ashe. I knew that it was, I just had every advantage. I was used to the court. Um, I practiced on that court knowing I was gonna play Arthur Ashe. I had seen him play in a tournament in Miami the two weeks before and I sat and I, I actually charted out how he hit his shots, where he hit his shots. I saw him again uh, in the finals of a tournament the next week. I checked out the chart that I had written. I knew where I, I knew where he was going to go, and I was good enough. I knew that when I would approach on his backhand, nine times out of ten, he was going to go down the line on his attempted approach, uh, attempted passing shot. He didn't like changing it up to go cross court. I did not believe. So the problem was I sort of ambushed him because I knew everything about him. He knew nothing about me and I was very comfortable, but I was good enough at that time to execute my game plan well enough to win the set. So I don't diminish anything I did. I know what I did. I'm really proud of what I did, but I also knew that, you know, if he had, expected that he was going to play someone who was maybe as good as I was. He just thought this was going to be an exhibition. He could probably, you know, be Arthur Ashe and walk through it. And he couldn't. But I knew if he put his mind to it, and it might well be a different story. But the, the epiphany that I had was I made the decision for the right reason. Mm -hmm. Not because I wanted to please my dad, but because... I knew I wasn't going to be able to make it physically. And I knew that my interests and my joy were not in tennis anymore. We're not playing every single day. Now, that's why a lot of kids get burned out playing tennis. Mm -hmm. You just get burned out. Luckily, I had something to go to, which was my academics and all of that. And I was excited about that. So I made the decision for the right reason. And I talk, I often counsel young people and I say, you know, it's important to get the opinions of your parents, the opinions of your teacher, the opinions of people who care about you. But at the end of the day, it's your life and you need to make your decisions because it's your bed. You're going to have to sleep in it. So you know what? At the end of the day, you have to follow your heart and, and do what you in your gut you know is right for you. And this time I pleased my dad. There were times later when, you know, I didn't please my dad. Um, in my decisions. And they turned out to be great decisions. He didn't want me to leave the William Morris agency years later and, and start my own company because I had the security he always looked for. But I did. And it turned out to be one of the great decisions of all time. Not because I remember when you did. And no, not because William Morris didn't treat me well. It wasn't the right thing for me anymore after nine years. They, we had some philosophical differences. Gosh, everything you're saying is so amazing. But I want to point out for everyone who's listening who might gloss over, is you just delivered such a powerful masterclass in your description of how you beat Arthur Ashe, right? Who was ranked fifth in the world at the time. And I've learned so much too from working with athletes about how at that level, it's mindset that wins. And you employed such incredible strategy, right? 
study him. What can I know? How can, oh. what is my strategy going into this? There was no wishful thinking. Like, I hope I could beat Arthur Ashe. What you said, what do I need to do in order to beat Arthur Ashe? And then you did it. It's love, love, love. And I want everyone to stop, rewind and listen to that whole section again, which by the way, brings me to another thing you said that I love. Eyesight isn't necessarily insight. Do you explain? Absolutely. You know, Barbara, there's, as you know, a story in my book when I was in high school and we talked about this already. My whole being as an 11, 12, 13 and 14 and 15 year old was all about athletics. It, it established my identity. It established my um, confidence. I thought of myself, saw of myself as an athlete. I did not yet see myself as a student. And mm. when I was at a very, very competitive high school, I wanted to apply to a couple of prep school, I'm sorry, a couple of Ivy League colleges. And the headmaster uh, at that school could not have dissuaded me more. Mm. He basically said, you know, you'll never get in. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your money for the application. And then when I told him that a recruiter had suggested that I apply to Harvard, you know, one, he's, he was a Harvard alum, but two, he felt, and maybe rightfully so from his perspective, that only the top two or three students should get into Harvard. He, I mean, he couldn't fathom I would get into Harvard. And I always had a very good memory still do, thank God. So I tested well, but I never, I really didn't do my homework very much in high school. I, I skated by. And he thought I was a dumb jock, as they used to say back then. He, he and everything I did indicated, not that I was dumb, but I didn't care about my studies. And he was right. So he basically told me he was not going to write a recommendation for me. He would not even, he wouldn't even want me. He wanted to have nothing to do with my applying to his alma mater. But my mom, who knew me so well, had a talk with him and explained that I was a late bloomer in everything. And academics was, you know, one of those things where I would come around. And she explained everything as to why I focus so much on my athletics, and she explained that athletics has always been a crutch for me, been a catalyst, a launching pad, and a crutch. He got it to his to his credit, and they sort of cut a deal. He said, if his if Kenny's grades rise substantially, meaning getting some A's, I will I won't write a great recommendation, but at least I'll write a recommendation so that he can apply. And he felt. No, he'll never get in. And I was ready. I took a course with someone by the name of um, Robert Morrison, who taught me sociology. And that changed everything for me. And I loved the book. I actually read them. I, um, I devoured them. And he saw a lot in me and inspired me and, and his belief in me really made a huge difference. And we all talk about teachers who 
have made a difference in their lives. He was the teacher who made the most difference in my life because I was ready to grow and he saw my ability to grow. And my doing really well in his course inspired me to do well in all my other courses. So I kept up my end of the deal and this headmaster kept up his end of the deal. And he wrote what he termed was a very mediocre recommendation. I did have a spectacular meeting with a very, very young and I thought brilliant admissions officer at Harvard who turned out to be years later um, the Dean of Admissions and might have even been Dean of Students, I'm not sure. His name is Tom Dingman. He also saw the potential in me. And much to everybody's surprise at, at my school, I got into Harvard and I got into all the other schools I applied to as well. And were part you, of that was- They were surprised. That, were you surprised? I was shocked. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, people were shocked. I have definitely grown since then. But luckily, Tom saw my potential. I think he lobbied for me. I also had a recruiter who lobbied for me, who also saw my potential. But I was a good combination, and I understand that, of being a very accomplished tennis player. I had won the New York States, New York singles, doubles, New York cities twice. I was a national paddle tennis champion at a very young age, at 17. So I was a, an accomplished athlete. So I think they thought, you know what? We need to fill out our student body. Let's have somebody that's well-balanced and who knows if they'll play for the team. And when I went to college, I made the freshman dean's list. I graduated magna from Harvard and I was captain and number one player. And I truly, that's where I really launched. But going back to your question, there was many, many years, for, Many, many years going back in my high school, there was someone from Harvard who would give out the Harvard Award. He was the number one student at Harvard every year. And what happened was, was that I kept in touch with that headmaster because I wanted him to know that I was making my high school proud. I didn't fail. I didn't let him down. I wanted to know, I wanted him to know that. And he was very happy when I made the freshman dean's list and he was happy about everything else. And then my senior year, when I told him I was going to graduate Magna, he said, so funny, you should call because the person who gave out the Harvard Award is not available this year. And I'd like you, Kenny, to give out the award, which was unfathomable because when for years, the person who gave out the Harvard Award saw me get the tennis award and um, he'd always say to me, you should think about applying at Harvard. And the headmaster actually took me aside and said to him, pushed me aside and said, he's not Harvard material. And I remember hearing that, and that I agreed with him. So, I mean, it was, it was what it was. But after I gave out the Harvard Award, which I can tell you was one of the most incredible things in my life, the headmaster came to me and said, Kenny, I've been doing this for over 40 years. And you, you and your mother taught me a great lesson. Eyesight isn't insight. 
I looked at you and saw, you know, the jock. I never looked to see what else there was. I never looked to see the potential. And I was wrong in dissuading you from applying to the schools you wanted to apply to. I didn't see it. I only have a few more years left, but I can tell you, I will never make that same mistake again. And you need to look way past, in essence, the book cover. I never did. And I, in turn, learned a great lesson from that day, Barbara, because when somebody's angry, when somebody doesn't react the way I would like them to react, I really try to go beyond the eyesight. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe they're ill. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But the key is to understand where people are coming from. Because if you can understand their history, their background, what they've experienced, you have a better means of understanding why they're reacting the way they are. Mm -hmm. and, and I always believe that through understanding comes respect, from respect comes compassion and love and, and truly connecting with people where they are, meeting people where they are and connecting with them from where they're coming from. So that, that eyesight doesn't mean insight was incredibly insightful for me because it was a game changer as to how I try to understand people, how we can all grow to respect people and at a time when there's so much um, rancor mm -hmm. and division in our country, I think it's so important not only to have self-love because if you love yourself, you have enough love to love others. So that's so important, but also to try to understand where people are coming from and why they need what they need and do what they do. If you understand their motivations, it's a lot easier to not only connect with them, but help them. Mm -hmm. And 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 succeed in the interaction you're you're having with them. Ken, this has been incredible. Do you promise you'll come back and talk about career choreography? I promise. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been wonderful. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you're interested in media coaching for you or your team, please shoot me a note and please be sure to visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera and Off. And as always, Please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.